pray and then we'll look into God's word together. Father, we thank you for this time to gather. What a joy to uh, see what we've already seen in this, in this service. We've watched people publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus Christ alone. Each one of them made it so clear that their salvation was separate from them. It was not a work of their own. It was not something they produced. And they clearly gave you credit, God. And now they are identified in Christ. Father, you look at them in Son. You look at them in your Son. Lord, a blessed thing to remind ourselves of, Lord. We thank you for believers' baptism and the testimony of a work that was done internally and now begins to come out. So we're grateful for that, Lord. Thank you for just good worship today, singing together. We are grateful to be together, Lord, and and to sing is just a blessing as well. Lord, we ask that you be with our missionaries around the country, Lord. It's been a joy to talk to a few of them this week and encourage them as they uh, go through some extreme struggles, Lord, as they're trying to preach the gospel and lead people to faith, Lord, but uh, very difficult circumstances in many of their countries, Lord. So we pray you would strengthen them. Cause us to be givers, Lord. We want to give. Um, we see this ministry here, what you're doing here, but around the world as well. Seminary, men being trained. Oh, Lord, so much, so much to do in such little time, Lord. But may we press on and run through the tape. In Jesus' name, amen. I almost forgot to announce my niece and her good friend, Bridget, are here. Yes. Hi, Andy. Good to have you here. Always good to have family um, in the area. And so we are always blessed by that. Um, take your Bibles and turn to Math, uh, Excuse me, Mark chapter 15 is where our text will be. Pastor Brian read that. This text is um, a, a sobering text, to say the least. And um, I'll use the narrative of the other Gospels as well to help explain it. But the title of the sermon is The Crushing of the Ser- uh, Suffering Servant. The Crushing of the Suffering Servant. I don't know how else to say that, but I just took it right out of Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. The Bible says this there. It says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. To crush him. Put him to grief. It's a strong term, isn't it? To think that God would find pleasure in crushing his son. Further explanation needs to go with that, doesn't it? The father had laid down this plan before the foundations of the world. He knew he would create this creation made in his own image. He knew they would reject him. In fact, they would believe a lie of Satan over believing him. There they would plunge all of the human race, every man, woman, and child that ever comes from them would be born into depravity. And there would be only one way to rescue them. And that was for his son to come through a seed of a woman. And in Genesis 3.15, there the redemptive story starts. God was going to send a seed. He was going to send his own son. He was going to send himself, as we sang today. And then the same word is used to crush the head of the serpent. But God would have to crush his son for that to take place. And that's where we're at now in our narrative in the book of Mark. We have now come to the place where we are almost at his crucifixion. The Bible is not withholding many details. What we'll see today is at times overwhelming It's heart-wrenching. I don't know how many times I was brought to tears this week just studying and thinking and seeing the imagery so clearly displayed in the book of Mark and John and Matthew and Luke as well. 
And yet this must be done. I read you a quote not too many weeks ago from Ray Ortland. He said this, God and God alone can take bloody violence, arrogant injustice, cunning cruelty, and blend it all around to serve a redemptive purpose. And as we listen to this, I want you to be reminded that that is God's purpose. As bloody as it is and as cruel and unjust as it is, God is crushing his son for our sake. Mark's account of the mockery of Pilate's uh, Roman soldiers is very vivid in detail. In fact, the original language uses a bunch of present tense, but inside present tense language in the Greek, there's, there's different modes within them. And this is what we call a historical present tense. And, and what that means is the writer, motivated, led by the Spirit of God, wrote in such a way with present tense that it makes you feel as though you're there. And I trust as we study this, you will step back in time with me and see what our Lord Jesus did for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke describe this scene as coming after Pilate's trial. But yet, as we'll see as we look into the book of John, we'll, we'll begin to understand that possibly during this trial, Pilate was having Jesus mocked and beat and scorned and then bringing him out, presenting him to the people, and then taking him back and possibly doing it again in order to try to prove that Jesus was innocent. It's also quite possible that even after this trial, he was beat again before he began to carry his cross towards Golgotha. The point is that the torture is unbearable. Historians tell us that the mockery connected with the scourging of Jesus as part of Pilate's futile way of releasing him or to avoid crucifixion is out of the ordinary. They cannot find any accounts, and, and many of these are written down in old logs and extra-biblical material. They cannot find anything that's equivalent to what they did to the Lord Jesus. It doesn't mean that it wasn't done, but it tells us that this was profound. I found myself through this study taking Isaiah 53 in one Bible, open next to Mark chapter 15 as I study. I can't help but go back to this Isaiah passage that's so profoundly prophetic, seven year, 700 years before the time of Christ, the Lord writes. And so what I did this time is I just took phrases out of Isaiah 53. And the, here's the goal. I want to just give you these phrases. And, and I want you to think about that as we preach through this text. Let me just read you phrases from Isaiah 53. He was despised. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. We ourselves esteemed him stricken. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted by God. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourgings we are healed. For the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due... He had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. The Lord was pleased to crush him. As a result, he anguished in his soul. He will bear our iniquities. He poured out himself to death. He was numbered with transgressors. 
and he himself bore the sins of many. Well, I want to give you three thoughts this morning to sum up this text. And I hope you keep your finger on your Bible and I hope you have a Bible because this is God's word speaking to us this morning. Number one, we see the mocking and scourging of the innocent suffering servant. We see the mocking and scourging of the innocent suffering servant. I certainly stuck that word in that, in that phrase, innocent. And you're gonna see over and over, repeatedly, Pilate, wicked Pilate, demands of his innocence. We know he's impeccable. Those who are believers know that there is no sin in or of him. And even this godless man witnessed that. Look at verse 16 with me. The Bible says the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort. Well, Matthew 27, 27, a a corresponding text says, then the soldiers of the government took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him, around him. Now, most likely these were men part of the guard that brought Pilate down from Caesarea. This was not Pilate's main station where he ruled from. He's down here for Passover. He's come down for the big celebration of the Jews. Millions of people in town and it's a time for political things. And so he's down there. And these, these Romans here, these Roman soldiers, they're, not, they're certainly not Jewish. In fact, they don't care for the Jews much. They've been recruited out of Palestine and other parts of the Roman Empire. And notice the text says the soldiers took Jesus away. And what Marx adds here in this section is that during this trial, these soldiers are coming from this platform out in front, where it's called the pavement, out in front, and they're bringing Jesus back and forth and back and forth while they're doing horrible things to him. Well, it's clear that the harmony of the Gospels teach this, and so I want to just turn to John chapter 19. I'm going to jump back and forth to this passage, so Stick a piece of paper in there, your finger in there, but turn to John chapter 19 because I want you to understand that there's several beatings probably going on here. And it's, and it's grotesque in its nature. John chapter 19, one through four reads this. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come to him and say, listen to this, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. And Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you will know that what? I find no guilt in him. Notice this is in the middle of the trial. Jesus has been scourged and and a crown of thorns put on him. He's been slapped in the face. And then he's brought out again to prove that he was innocent. This was a terrible way to prove somebody's innocence. To beat them, mock them, scourge them, and then say they're innocent. This is the twistedness of Pilate and his sinful character. 
Well, the passage isn't clear whether this, pub, whether this scourging was public or not, whether this mocking could be seen by others. The Jews limited their time with the Romans. They did not want to be around them, especially on Sabbath, Sabbath or high holy, high holy Days. This is, this is a Passover. And so most likely they, they took Jesus back into this praetorium um, back into this headquarters, which was, which was a military base, uh, really, is what it is. And there they would mistreat the Lord Jesus Christ. Pilate would use these headquarters as he came from Caesarea, and he would stay there, and he would conduct business. See, he knew there was Jews that didn't like him. He knew about zealots who killed Roman soldiers. He, he knew he had to be careful, and so when he came to town, he stayed where? He stayed in a fort with 600 soldiers. To protect him and so the religious leaders knew that and they bring Jesus to him here so Jesus is taken back into this praetorium here and here he is abused in this military base notice the verse says that back in Mark chapter 15 verse 16 that they called together the whole Roman cohort well a legion was 6,000 men 6,000 soldiers a cohort was a tenth of the legion so depending on who was available, who was off duty or on duty, or who was stationed somewhere else around the city, lots of people going on, there's a lot of people involved in this. And it's possible that there were even hundreds of soldiers in the mocking and beating of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some of these men might have been there the night before when Jesus was arrested. You remember that the religious leaders got Roman soldiers to go with them. They had the temple police with them, but they took Roman soldiers, and maybe some of them saw Jesus at that night, and there cuffed him and brought him down to Annas and Caiaphas. But now let's think about what Jesus has been through. He's been to the garden. He's prayed. He's wept tears like drops of blood before his father. He knows what's coming. He knows there's a cup that is unbearable for anyone else to drink, and only he alone can drink it. His disciples could not stay awake. He's challenged them. In the midst of that conversation, after three times of prayer, here comes the soldiers and Judas and temple police, and he's betrayed by a so-called friend. He now is sent off to Annas and struck there. He's taken to Caiaphas and spit on and struck there. And, and then to Herod, and Herod mocks him, and there we see the whips come out and shards in those whips and his back lacerated. And now he's in front of Pilate taking beating after beating. He has no sleep, most likely no food, no water. He's completely dehydrated and full of massive exhaustion. He's fully man, remember. And God, as we watch our Lord Jesus Christ go through life, you know as we've seen miracle after miracle, incident after incident, he never uses his divine powers for his own support. He's suffering as a man. Look at verse 17. At the beginning of it, it says they dressed him up in purple. Well, the first step of these brutal, godless soldiers was to put a purple robe on Jesus as though he was in some coronation as a king. And most likely this was some discarded cape of a Roman soldier that would have had a red or scarlet type of robe. Matthew 27, 28 calls it a scarlet robe. And Mark tells us that the next step was they twisted a crown of thorns and, and put it on him. Jesus' head is encircled with, with a crown made from these 
twigs that had thorns on them and and it's twisted in such a shape that it looks like maybe a small wreath and it's driven onto his head. Look, clearly the goal was to make Jesus look like a king but a ridiculous, painful king. Matthew adds that they put a reed in his hand like it was a scepter and, and doubtlessly they sat him down there and they began to mock him. See, the scene's gruesome, brothers and sisters. It's gruesome. These thorns are deadly. They're a type of thorn that um, was sharp and hard. Uh, Later, this bush became known as a crown of thorns. If you spend any time in in Florida and out goofing around in the woods, you can run into the, they have a very similar one here. They're brutal. They're stiff and they're sharp and they lacerate. Look at verse 18. And they began to acclaim him, Hail, King of the Jews. The mocking and discouraging hits an all new low here, doesn't it? As they began to sarcastically pay homage to this king that they had crowned with thorns. See, this is all one big joke to these soldiers. They're all amusing themselves with a sinful, brutal assault on an innocent man. Notice they call, they, say, they call out, Hail, King of the Jews. Well, this was a mocking play on a phrase they would use. They would say, Hail, Emperor Caesar, King. And though they twisted that phrase to mock the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Sanhedrin had scorned him for his prophetic abilities. They would slap, blindfold him. You remember this, they blindfolded and slapped him and then say, prophesy now who who slapped you. But now here these Roman soldiers taunt him as king. Do they know who they're messing with? They have no clue that the king of kings is sitting there before them. Hail is an imperative and it notes a heavy, sarcastic, heavy contempt. Look at verse 19 with me. They kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling and bowing before him. Well, it's important to note as you look at this, particularly original languages, that all three of these main verbs here, um, beating, spitting, and bowing, are all in, in perfects. And, and simply what that means is it means there's a, it denotes an attitude of just continual doing it and we don't know when it stopped. It was just repeatedly, repeatedly beating him spitting on him, mocking him. And you go, well, how long could that take? Well, he was delivered at six, crucified at nine. There's three hours of this stuff going on. The mocking and scourging were certainly not complete, so they snatched the reed out of his hand and they began beating it on his head. And you all know head injuries bleed, don't they? They bleed easily. And you can only imagine what Jesus looked like at this point. Blood is running down his face. It's dripping off of his beard. It's flowing off the back of his hair. He's completely drenched. He he is unrecognizable at this point. And these soldiers, in their minds, they're just mocking a so-called king. The spitting on Jesus' face portrays and adds just a grotesque insult, isn't it? It's just a personal, grotesque insult. Insult of mockery. 
John chapter 19, verse three that we just read, says they struck him with their hands as well, spitting, striking, spitting, striking, over and over and over without stop. To our Lord Jesus. See, all this is done in false worship. They're scornfully mocking him as they bow down before him. Here our bloody, beat up, weakened Lord sits there silently. Certainly the mockery from the soldiers was not motivated by some personal vindictive attitude of these soldiers. Most of them had no idea who he was. Think about that. Maybe a handful were there the night before when he got arrested. They're just on call. They're on duty. They go up. Yeah, go with these temple police. Arrest this man they're talking about. He's, he's making a charge that he's king. Let's get him down here and deal with it. And the majority of these men have no idea who he is. And when you find people who mock Jesus, they have no idea who he is. When you find people who use his name in vain constantly, they have no idea who he is. Or they would never do it. Maybe a few of them saw Jesus last night. I don't know if they had any impression of him. But here they are now making him look ridiculous. And their loyalty to Caesar was great. And anybody who's a threat to Caesar, we must dispatch, we must kill them. And so they had no tolerance. The Romans had no tolerance for other kings or other rulers. In fact, they really hated the Jews. Maybe some of these soldiers had some of their fellow soldiers killed by people like Barabbas. See, these zealots would work their way in the crowd, slip a knife right between ribs and walk away and let that soldier just fall. They didn't care for these Jews. And here's just another Jew making some kind of claim. And so it was a license to kill, wasn't it? It was a license for brutality, unrestricted. And the Jewish leaders, think about this, the Jewish leaders without any remorse hand over one of their own to be killed by those who held them in enslavement. It makes no sense, does it? Look at verse 20. After they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off of him and put on his own garments and they led him out to crucify him. Well, verse 20 says, after they mocked him, you can tell the tense of the verb there that there's a completion somewhere along the line, the insulting activity stopped. And how long it lasted, we're not sure. This could have gone on for several hours. But apparently somewhere along the line, Pilate puts a stop to it. He wants to bring him out front or, or finally put a stop to it and send him to crucifixion. But whatever it was, they got tired of this sadistic behavior and Pilate brings him out in front of the people once again. But brothers and sisters, don't miss the silence of Jesus. Don't miss that. Jesus is silent, silent before his unprovoked attackers. It's remarkable, isn't it? Have you put yourself in that shoes right then? I, I hope this is starting to get in deep with you right now as I'm preaching this. I hope you Christians in this room are bothered by this what they did to the Lord Jesus. And there he sat, silent. He never responded. This had a tremendous impact on Peter. See, Peter was one who could not capture his words. 
Peter, just the night before, could not stop himself from denial, denying Jesus Christ. He could not, he did not have the wherewithal to, to, to stand up for Jesus Christ. And in the end, he denies him once and then twice. And then the third time, he calls down condemnation from heaven upon himself. He can't be silent. This hits Peter so well, and the Spirit of God takes Peter and using Isaiah 53, he pins these words, 1 Peter chapter 2, 22 through 23, who committed no sin, speaking of Jesus as our example, who, was, who no deceit was found in his mouth. And listen to this, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Look, folks, what would you do? It's not gonna take long. Some of our Christian brothers and sisters in this nation are facing some of this right now. You've probably seen some of the YouTubes and some of the videos that are going out where Christians have lovingly tried to just speak with people. And they're spit on and attacked and all kinds of things that's happening in our country. And it's always happened in Christianity. The cross is foolishness to the world, brothers and sisters. It's foolishness. They look at what we believe. They can't believe you're wasting an hour and a half here, let alone put your faith in a man who died on a cross. But Jesus, Jesus, I, I love that phrase. He kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Isaiah, the prophet, not only wrote Isaiah 53, but he also wrote a great prediction in Isaiah 50, verse 6. Here the prophecy reads this way. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says, I, I gave my back to those who struck me. The phrase, the language isn't hard. You don't have to know Hebrew to know it. It's voluntary. I gave my back to those who strike me. So remember we talked about God was crushing. He was bringing blows on his son for our iniquity. That the chastisement of us would be upon him. This is what's taking place, brothers and sisters, in this narrative. The rest of the verse says, and my cheek to those who plucked out my beard. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us in the narrative of all what they did to him. In fact, there's terms there that we get the idea of what they did was repulsive. It's only out of the Old Testament that we do understand some of the other things they did. And then it says in Isaiah 50 verse six, I did not cover, now listen to this, I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. That's 700 years before the time of Christ. The Lord is walking perfectly in the Father's will. He's not missing a beat. He's walking perfectly with what the Lord has. Verse 20 tells us that they took off this purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. But again, John's narrative leads, leads us to believe that Pilate was bringing him back and forth. He was bringing out this bloodied, weakened Savior out. And he was presenting him again over and over to the crowds that he was innocent. Look with me back at John. I hope you hold your finger there or something. John chapter 19. We'll pick it up in verse 5 where we left it off. Jesus then came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. So 
Mark says they took it off, so you can tell this happened previous to that. So there's somewhere in this trial, he's brought him out, and he's wearing the robe. He has the crown of thorns on his head. And Pilate mockingly says, look at verse 5, Behold the man. Here's your king. Look at him. He's bloodied, swollen, beaten up, probably staggering at this point. Pilate has the gall to make this comment, behold the man. Pilate makes this statement, and look at the chief priest's reaction. So when the chief priest and the officers saw him, what do they do? Man, we've really blown it. We shouldn't have done this to this innocent man. That's not at all what they do. Look at verse six. So when they saw them, these, these religious leaders, the ones who have the care of the, the religious care of the nation, they cry out, crucify him. That's all they can come up with. Crucify him. And Pilate says, take him yourself and crucify him. Here we go. For I find what? No fault in him. He's innocent. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the son of God, i.e., they know the son is equal to the father. The son has everything the father has. He made himself out to be God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was, all, he was even more afraid. Wait a minute. Who, who did you say he made himself out to be? See, about this time, he's getting a note from his wife who said, look, I've had this horrible dream about this man. I am greatly perplexed. I'm very afraid. Don't have anything to do with him. Now they're saying he's made himself out to be the son of God. Look what his response is. He entered the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? So now it's not such a mock anymore. Who are you? What are you doing? What's going on here? There's an intensity to this. And look at Jesus. He gave him no answer. Don't speak to a fool. So Pilate, and you know this next section, I talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. Pilate says, you're not gonna speak to me? Do you know that I have authority over your life and death? You know I have control over that? And finally our Lord speaks up because you got nothing. You have not one ounce of control over me. It is the Father in heaven that controls all of that. And if I want, I could bring a legions of angels to wipe you out and obliterate the society. There's someone greater sin. It's those who reject me. That's the greater sin. And then verse 12, as a result of this, Pilate made efforts to, to release him. This impressed him. He, he's now realizing, I might be in over my head here. He's, he has stronger efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out saying, here's the response. If you release this man, he's not our king, this man. You are no friend of Caesar. And everyone who makes himself out to be king opposes Caesar. So now all of a sudden these people who hate Caesar, who hate being under the slavery of the Roman government, now are aligning themselves with him in order to kill an innocent man. Verse 13, then Pilate, then when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. You can see he's bringing him out and in. He's, he, he's there parading him. And he sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine looking at him? <laughs> 
<laughs> he's made him such a disgrace. He, he's unrecognizable. And he says, behold, your king. And they cried out. Here's, here's all they can say. Away with him. Away with him. Verse 15, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And now I want you to see this last statement in verse 15. The chief priest. This, there is no higher ranking religious people or governmental people in the nation of Israel than these guys right here, the chief priest. Their comment, we have no king but Caesar. Caesar was a god in the eyes of people. They have now made Caesar their God. (laughs) The God of creation is now in their presence. He's right there. The one who spoke existence. He owns all things. He knows whose are his is in front of them. And they reject him for a pagan, godless man named Caesar. This is the depth of depravity. Jesus is now handed over to the centurions. The Bible does not tell us that they remove the crown of thorns. The Bible says they remove the robe. All the ancient depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ show that there was no crown of thorns on him. Some paintings uh, modern will show that there. But it seems they stripped him of all that stuff and they led him away. Second thought, the suffering servant and his future church. The suffering servant and his future church. You go, well, Scott, how'd you get that? Well, our Lord came to die for all of his people, right? His blood is going to wash back all the way to Adam, the first believer who repented of his sin, and all those who truly believe that God would redeem them, deliver them from their sin, and he washes all the way forward. The Lord's blood will wash all the way forward to the last of the elect that God calls to himself. And in the middle of this, God has a plan. (laughs) And you see what he's going to do with the church. Look with me at verse 21. Mark chapter 15. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, once Pilate yielded the command to, to be the command that they wanted him to be crucified, he yielded to that. He had to give an execution order. They could not kill Jesus without an order, and so he yields and he gives this execution. And at the end of verse 20, you see him being led away, and they're, they're gonna take him, and he's gonna die outside on a hill called Golgotha. Numbers chapter 15, verse 35 says that they had to do execution outside the city gates. And so this is all playing out just as God had laid it down. But no Roman law was ever written that there had to be a time frame. Remember, I talked about this a few weeks ago. The Jews had a law that once they made a conviction that they had to wait a whole day so that if any other evidence came in or any other witnesses came in, they would hear that, but not in Roman law. As soon as Pilate said, kill him, the execution went forward. Mark's account seems Remarkably impersonal, a little bit and sobering, but that's the way it's stated. They took him out to crucify him. They just led him away. See, Mark doesn't carry the eyewitness accounts like John does, and, 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 and yet he's using these historical present tense. They're short, and they take your breath away, and they led him out to 
crucify him. And, and you and I, you, if you're a Christian in here for any length of time, and even if you're not a Christian, I think you know what crucifixion is. That's a sobering view. Matthew, Mark, Luke refer to Simon of Cyrene who was compelled to bear the cross. All the first three gospel writers bring that into the narrative. And part of Jesus' death sentence is that when they sentenced someone to death, just like Jesus here, they had to bear their own cross. That was part of the death sentence. It was part of the mockery and the scorning. They, they carried their own cross to their own death. John chapter 19 says that Jesus carried his cross for some distance, possibly to the gate of Jerusalem. There, weakened from abuse and sleeplessness and injury and lacerations and dehydration and loss of blood, Jesus could just no longer physically carry his cross. So in order to keep this execution process going, because remember the soldiers, this is just a job. Let's just get this done. Let's get this guy killed and we can be off. We, we can have time to ourselves. And so they just randomly, at least to their own thinking, reach into the crowd and as they're doing this, they grab a man named Simon of Cyrene. Now, most likely this man was from North African, uh, North African coastline. There's a port city called the Port of Cyrene um, that's located there. Historians tell us that there's a large Jewish trade center there. And Simon was probably just like a lot of Jews. He was coming to Passover. He had made the pilgrimage there to celebrate Passover. There is no evidence that Simon was African or black. The port city had a large Jewish colony there. They had a large synagogue. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 10, there were many Cyrene, Cyrenians who heard the gospel in their own language as Peter preached that first sermon and were saved. See, whether Simon was a resident of Jerusalem or had come just to attend the Passover, the passage is not, near, not nearly clear enough to understand that. Um, the people had made, and this is recently, I'm, I'm, I'm hitting this because recent things have been said about this passage. It says, coming from the country. This does not mean he was working in the fields or he was slave or something. He, he landed in a port and he had to get across and come to the country. He was coming to Jerusalem to most likely celebrate the Passover, and so I believe that the best interpretation is that Simon was divinely led into the city at the exact moment, at the exact time, to be in the exact position to carry the cross of Christ. Nothing more needs to be made of that. So we don't use the Bible to push our own political views. We study it verse by verse and understand it. So this was no accident. I, I, there's no accident that Simon is, is picked out. See, God's sovereignty never rests. It never rests. He's always working. He uses these godless Roman soldiers and his providence to have Simon right in the right spot because he's the one who's gonna bear the cross of Christ. Notice in this passage that Mark mentions an unexplained reference of the sons of Cyrene, of, of Simon of Cyrene. This is no accident either. It's clear that Mark's familiar with these people. Notice that it says, he pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, it's just a statement, we don't have any clue, this the first time I've ever heard of him, the father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. It's clear Mark knows who these men are. In fact, Alexander and Rufus are members of the Rome church. Guess where Mark's writing this narrative from? He's inspired by the Spirit of God to write every word of this narrative, probably from Rome. 
In fact, he's probably in the church of Rome. And most likely, these men are possibly elders within the church now. Romans 16, verse 13 says, Greet Rufus, a chosen man in the Lord. A choice man, excuse me, a choice man. It's a different term than Salvitic. It seems to be leadership driven. A choice man in the Lord, and also his mother, who is also mine. That's how close he was with his family. Now, I want you to think about this just for a moment. It's obvious that this man who was chosen to carry the cross of Christ came to embrace Jesus in saving faith as did his wife and son. And the triune God was preparing men, preparing men to turn to him and then go on to lead the church. I think this is such a beautiful part of the story. Can you imagine Simon's story? He saw all that they did to the Lord Jesus on the way to the cross. He's there packing this wooden emblem of death behind the Lord Jesus. He has front row seed of them mocking and beating and scourging him along the way. It doesn't take him long before the Spirit of God opens his mind and he begins to say, this man is innocent. I deserve what he's getting. See, every Christian says what we heard in the baptismal. We say, I realized I was a sinner and I need the perfect one for salvation. See, that's what Christians do. And so this is the the message of the church. The cross is the message of the church. This is what we teach. This is what we hang our shingle on. This is who we are. We are people of the cross. Without the cross, we have nothing. In churches that don't teach on Christ from the Old Testament to the New, they offer things to get by during the week, but they offer no solution to the sinfulness of man. The cross is our only hope. Jesus himself said in John chapter 12, verse 32, if you lift me up, I'll draw all men to myself. If you lift me up, I'll draw all men to myself. Now certainly he was speaking, this was referred to in the baptism of of, uh, JC, that that text she was taken to where the serpents were biting because of their sin and their bitterness and their hatred towards God and not believing him. They looked at this bronze serpent and they were healed. And it's it's in the whole story. You lift me up, everyone who looks upon me will be healed. And he says, you look upon me and I will draw you to myself. It is such a great lesson for us. Do you want to see people get saved around you? Do you want to see family get saved? Do you want to see friends and coworkers get saved? Lift up the cross. They don't get saved when you talk about going to church or being a good person. That doesn't save people. God uses the cross. We're a cross-centered, Christ-centered church. We preach it from Genesis all the way to Revelation that he is alone, the only way to the Father. And listen, I promise you, I've been doing this a lot of years You lift them up, God saves people. Sometimes it's hard and long and and you wonder if he's ever gonna do it, but you keep lifting them up and he will draw all men to himself. Not universalism, he'll draw them from every walk of life. And you should see my view this morning. There's people in here from every walk of life, ethnic diversity, economic diversity, troubles and hardships that you've gone through differently. God saved you because what? Someone preached the cross to you at one time. Someone shared the cross with you. When you lift me up, I'll draw men to myself. 
And here's Ruf, I mean, here's, here's Simon, the father of Rufus and Alexander. He's walking behind, and somewhere along the line, we don't know when it happened. Maybe it was at Pentecost. Maybe he came back for Pentecost and heard the gospel preached there, and God floods it into his heart, and he becomes this man who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he stays in Rome, and he's part of that Rome church plant, and his sons are there, and, and they flourish, and now they're gospel preachers and elders who are overseeing a flock there, and the church is in this text before there was a church. And it amazes me that how God had this all planned. There's also one more event that takes place that I think is worth looking at. Look at Luke 23, just Matthew, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, just one book over. Jesus is still bearing his cross and, and maybe this affected Simon as well, but Matthew chapter 23, verse 26, it says, when they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene. Again, Luke writes like the church knows who this man is. Coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people and women who were mourning and lamenting. It was a Jewish custom. If someone's going to die, you need someone to mourn over you. You need someone to weep over you. And most people think it's probably Mary's and the mother of Jesus. And, and they certainly could be mixed in this group. But this is a group of people that have been trained to mourn when somebody's going to die. Jesus often has dealt with these folks before. Their hearts are not right. They're not there because they see Jesus as their only hope. It's just tradition. And so Jesus turns to him in verse 28. Look what he says. Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me. <laughs> but weep for yourself and for your children. And then he begins to talk about possibly two different events that are coming. Verse 29. For behold, the days are coming when you will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs who have never bore and the breast that has never nursed. And most people tie that with his with his message on the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13 that he's talking about 70 AD. Boy, there's a time coming where Jews are going to be wiped out. Wiped out. And then he turns more to, according to his Olivet Discourse, towards the day of the Lord, the very end times, verse 30, he says, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. And then finally he makes a statement that's so profound. Look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? See, he's referring to himself as the green tree, alive. Here I am, the Son of God, alive. The one who has life in me is life. I am the giver of life. I can do that. If they do that to me, think about what they'll do to the dead. He's speaking spiritually. He's pointing out that these people are dead and you can only imagine what they're going to do to you. The nation of Israel was dead. And they're even more dead because they're rejecting the Son of God who's right amongst them. As you turn back to Mark, just some things that come out of this. Verse 22. They finally get to the place. It says they brought him to the place of the Golgotha which is translated place of the skull. Here, Christ, Simon, the soldiers, this crowd, they all arrive at the execution destination. This is it. It's called Golgotha. Hebrews also reminds us that like all the 
unburnt sacrifices were to be taken outside the city and they were to be burned there. And, and then the writer says that he, Jesus, might sanctify people through his own blood suffered outside the gate. And so he's this final sacrifice. He's the final lamb. And now they've arrived at this final place where the sanctifying work of Jesus would be finished. It's called Golgotha. And this is where the wrath of God would have its final satisfaction. Most likely the site, it was a site of many crucifixions. Golgotha is the Arabic word there, um, literally means skulls. You can see that in the text. But it's a Latin equivalent is the word we get for Calvary. And of course these are precious words to us, right? And we've sang these songs and have these terms in there. There's a debate on why the knoll was called Golgotha or a place of the skull. Um, some, and some of you have been there, they say it looks like a shape of a skull. But then there's others that say it's called that because there were so many skulls there from the deaths. And you say, well, well what happened? Well, thousands of people died here. And it was in a prominent place just outside the city along a major highway so people entering would see this is what happens when you transgress the law. You die. It was a place of horrific agony, sorrow, and public death. And it's a place where Jesus Christ died for his elect. This is where he died. It's precious to the church, right? It's in our songs. It's in our theology. We talk about this place, a hill called Calvary. On Golgotha, he died for me. A hill far away. It's written in all of our songs. It's written in our theology because it's so important to us. If he does not go up that hill, if he does not die on that cross, we have sure wasted some time here today because there's no satisfaction of the Father. Philippians chapter two, verse eight says, being found in the appearance of a man, and I don't want you to forget that. You go, yes, he's God, he's creator. He never uses his own deity and his own power to protect himself. He's found as a man, he humbled himself, even becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Even the death of a cross. Third and last statement I want to make is just simply the suffering servant crucified. The suffering servant crucified. Look at verse 23 with me. They, they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. The they is undefined there. It most likely could be the soldiers, but it wasn't the soldiers' custom to offer some medic or some kind of medicine to help the suffering. They were not known for that. In some of the extra biblical curriculum, it tells us that there was, there was a story, we don't know if it's true or not, but there's a story of an old, rich Jewish woman who lived in Jerusalem, and she was the one who brought this gall, this myrrh and wine to him. And she based it on, and this is the, the story on Proverbs 31, verse six, give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him who life is bitter. See, this wine was mixed with myrrh. Uh, Matthew calls it gall. It was wine, wine mixed with gall. It was, it was intended to deaden the pain. It was, it, was, it was medicine in a way. It was there to take away some of the over-the-top pain. And clearly, if, if this drink was given to the soldiers, I, I, I just don't think they would because they didn't want them to 
labor in their, in their death. They wanted them to die quickly. They wanted to be done with this job. But notice the verse says this, he wouldn't take it. And the verb tense here gives a clear understanding that Jesus refused it. He tasted it. The other narrow says he tasted it, but he refused it. He did not want it. And listen, our Savior was determined to meet his suffering and death in his full faculties. Remember, he's there for you and I. He has to taste the full wrath of God. That cup that was given, he has to drink every drop of it for you and I. That cup started the night in the garden, didn't it? Soon as he was done praying with his disciples after weeping and asking God to take that away if it was his will, he accepted that will and just behind that was a rest and then all the things, all the abuse and the mocking and all that come and he voluntarily drinks this. And so there was no way that he was going to lessen his suffering. See, our Lord spared nothing to save us. He spared nothing Look at verse 24. The Bible says, and they crucified him. See, it's the simplest words stating the most horrific fact. It's the simplest words stating the most horrific fact. All of the gospels state this historical fact just like that. Just a statement, a single phrase describing his death. But they have no, no physical evidence of what happened. They cover all of the crucifixion. See, many believe that the crucifixion came about from godless people, Persians probably. Uh, they were the ones, the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. And they were the first ones to start executing people crucifixion style. And now, a thousand years later, the Bible tells us, a thousand years before this, Psalms twenty-two sixteen says, they'll pierce my hands and my feet, a great messianic passage of foretelling of the death of Christ. Isaiah says, they'll pierce me through for, my, for our transgressions he was pierced. Do you know that history tells us that before Jesus died, there were at least, that they can document, 30,000 Jews crucified before Jesus. This was not a new form of death. In 80, 70 AD, at the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, historians tell us they ran out of lumber to crucify rebellious Jews. But there's something about this crucifixion. This one's unique. There's nothing like it. And so I think the writers don't want to compare it to something else. And, and so... We have to look into history just a little bit. You know, there were several types of crosses. There was a cross that they used. It was just one pole, and they would put their hands above their heads and nail their hands that way and just crucify them. There was the traditional cross that they would lay the person down and spread the hands out, and there they would drive through the wrist um, with nails and through the feet. They would stack the feet on top of one another and then put a, about a five to seven inch, very rustic, very rusty spike through them they didn't have machines to mill them like we would today and so they were they were flesh tearing terrible things the medical explanations i don't know if you've ever read the medical explanations of what happened to jesus during this time they're almost unbearable to read from a medical perspective cross eventually after this crucified Lord of ours is stretched out on it. It's eventually tilted up and it's dropped into a hole and these holes were there 
and they were routed out of the, the, the rock because they're used over and over. Crucified position would now drop into that. The diaphragm would begin to collapse and the victim would die of slow suffocation mostly. The only way they could get breath was they would have to push up on the, their feet with that nail in them and pull up on their arms just to get air into their lungs as they're filling with blood. Jesus must have grown greatly tired. His muscles must have begun to spasm and cramp and must have been overwhelming pain as his breath got shorter. To shorten the job, the soldiers were known to take like a bat-like club and they would break the legs of them so they couldn't push themselves up to get air so they could live longer. They didn't want that. They wanted to get the job done so they could get back to the barracks. So they'd break their legs. The suffering of Jesus is important because God used that to help us see our offense of our sin. He says, Scott, why are, you, why are you bringing the details? I bring the details because Scott needs to see the gravity of his sin. I need to be reminded what it cost my Lord. It's so good for me, as hard as it is, and trust me, brothers and sisters, are working through this all week long. There's just times of weeping. You just sit there and you weep. And then your sins are obvious, even now that Jesus already died for. You go, oh, Lord, you went through so much for me. And listen, how else is the wrath of God going to be satisfied? How else? See, Christ becomes our propitiation. He's the one who can satisfy the Father. He has to be stricken. His back has to be given. He has to, be, he has to, be, he has to carry all that weight. Every past, present sin of you and I has to be put on him. And God has to be satisfied with it. Listen. This is such the truth of our salvation. First Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Isn't that a great statement? If you're a Christian, Paul writes to us and says, for God has not destined us for wrath. Why? Because Christ took it. Christ took our wrath. Earlier he said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, he said, Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus rescued you. See, when you look at Jesus hanging on that cross, do you think of him as your rescuer? He rescued me. And, and look, you go, man, that cross was bad. It was nasty. You know what hell like is under the wrath of God for eternity? See, that's what he's rescuing us from. He's rescuing us from his eternal wrath that God would put on all those who do not know Jesus Christ. That's massive. John Carson, I mean, D.A. Carson said this. John Carson was a good friend of mine. D.A. Carson said this, there is nothing that inspires our gratitude and awe more than the love shown by the eternal Son of God on the cross. There's nothing that inspires our gratitude and awe more than the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you, are you you're sitting here, I get to teach this. I had to study this all week. Trust me how difficult this is. Are you in awe of what he did for you? Is this just another sermon? Are you stand amazed? As Jesus stood there silent, do you stand amazed what he did for you? See, most of these soldiers, they, they just they have no idea who there's there. There's one, we'll see this next week. He repents and he says, surely this must be the son of God. 
And there he's pardoned. Look at verse 24, just to wrap things up. It says, they divided up his garment among themselves and they cast lots to decide which man would take it home. See, most of the soldiers departed. There's usually a quadrant, what they call these, these four soldiers, and they stay there, and they're there to keep and guard the body, guard this person so that no one will come and try to rescue them or, or relieve their suffering. So while these four, these four soldiers are there, they begin this gambling process here to get the clothing of Jesus. So you go, why are they after this clothing? Clothing was very valuable in this day. You just didn't go down to Walmart. It was all hand spun and, and somebody had to spin all that and somebody had to put it all together and, and it's just, they're expensive and as you study the Old Testament, dead victims are always stripped of their clothing and then you see those given in return for, for a price of something. They're very valuable and so here this clothing of Jesus Christ which probably just made up uh, an inner garment um, then, a, then a tunic, an outer garment and a belt and um, possibly some sandals and a head covering. All of this now becomes something they gamble for. Look at John 19 real quickly here because you see the rest of this. I, I just love this scene in John. He just picks it so well. Verse 23, then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus took, out, took his outer, outer garment and made four parts and a part to every soldier and also the tunic and the tunic was seamless and woven as one. That's a pretty, it's a pretty precious piece of uh, clothing there. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it and decide it whose it shall be. And look what they're doing. They have no idea what they're doing, but look what's happening. To fulfill scripture, they divided my garments among them for, their, for my clothing. They cast lots. This is what the soldiers did. And God's hand is just all over this. Psalms 22 says that's exactly what they'll do. They'll divide my garments and cast lots for them. Then verse 25, the Bible says it was the third hour and they crucified him. Mark is the only one that gives a precise time. Third hour being 9 a.m. And I want you to think about the time frame. At 6 a.m., somewhere around there, they turned him over to Pilate. This is three hours. Three hours of intense interrogation mocking, scourging, and eventually nailing to a cross. We say, well, John 19, 14 says it was the sixth hour. Well, John writes his epistle, um, he writes his letter, his narrative, long, long time. He's the last, all the way in the 80s, 90s, he writes that. Roman time had now taken over the world, and the sixth hour meant six o'clock by then. And it had changed times, and so it's all... It's all right. Jesus is on the cross by nine o'clock in the morning. And then it just ends with this, and Pastor Brian mentioned this. It says, when they crucified him. This ends with that. We'll pick it up next week. But it's just the final mark of the human brutality. But it's not done. It's not done. And what we'll see here in the next week or so is we'll see now the father begins to turn away from him. I think it's one of the most difficult passages we'll get to. Not only is he now all bloody, beaten, totally dehydrated, he's unrecognizable, he's hanging on a cross with nails through his wrist and one, one through his feet. He's now gonna suffer because the Father is gonna separate from him. See, our Father is holy. And all of our sins, our past, present, and future sins will be pressed on him. He will be judged by the Father as though he committed them. Because the wages of sin is death. And so here he is going to, he is going to kill his son. And then he is going to separate himself. Because he is holy, he's going to separate himself from the son for a short time. This isn't over. 
And we'll see next week, man, things come loose. Ground starts to shake. Darkness. Uh, people come out of the grave. It, it's unbelievable when God pulls back from something. But right in the middle of that is our Lord Jesus. Listen, just hours before, think about this. Hours before, I'll finish with this. He's in the upper room celebrating a Passover meal. Disciples have no clue what's going on. Judas has left. He's gone off to go to do what he's going to do. The other ones don't seem to know what's going on. They make their merry way across the Kindred Valley. They go into the garden. They can't stay awake and pray. And now, all of a sudden, now he's on the cross dying. And think about this. Those wicked men in that crowd who cried crucify, guess where they're at? They're at home preparing the Passover lamb. And the final one's hanging on a cross. What are you going to do with Jesus? See, is he everything to you? See, to the world, the cross is foolishness. 1 Corinthians 1.18. The cross is foolishness to them, but to us it is the power to us is the power of God. We look at this cross and it is the power of God to save us. We put our faith, our God-given faith that Jesus did exactly what he said he did and accomplished all that he accomplished for our sakes. That is powerful. And here's how powerful it is. I'll never stand condemned for my sins. That's powerful. That's powerful. What are you gonna do with Jesus? Father, thank you for just a remembrance of our Lord. Thank you that he was unashamed and unafraid to go accomplish all that you had asked him to do. Lord, we see him so innocent, so perfect, being abused by godless men, soldiers who don't care, who mock Christ who mock the creator of the world, who mock the one that can set them free from their sins. They have no idea who they're dealing with. And he sits silent, saying nothing. Lord, it's clear he knows what he needs to do. There's no hope for us if he, somewhere along the way, calls angels down to wipe out his enemies. Or he himself just stands up and speaks and people fall dead. He can do all that. And yet he suffered. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in his turn. And when he was threatened, he did not return threat. But he kept trusting himself into the Father's plan. This must take place to save Scott. Scott goes to hell without this. And so he stayed coarse. And Lord, I am so grateful. I know I speak, Lord, on behalf of so many that sit here before me, Lord. And I know so many in this room say thank you, Lord Jesus. Before I end this prayer, if you are here today and you want to just say, take a moment. I've been doing all the talking. I just get, I'll just give you a few seconds. If you're a Christian and you believe what you've heard today, just take a moment and thank the Lord Jesus right where you're at. Just thank him for what he did. If you're here and you don't know if you're a believer, 
You may be like some of the baptism testimonies. You've just been putting on a good show for a while. I pray right now that you would say, oh Jesus, open my heart to your knowledge and truth of who you are and what you did. Beg him to come into your life. He will not disappoint you. Father in heaven, I close this prayer by asking you to save. Do what I cannot do. Give people an understanding, a trusting of who you are and that you accomplished all of your work. You poured your wrath on Jesus Christ for their sake. Do this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand with me for a closing benediction? If you need to speak with somebody, I'll be down front. Several of our pastors will be down here. They'll have a lanyard on. Also in the back, Pastor Bobby and a great crew of people back there to greet you. If you're a newcomer, I would encourage you to go back there. But don't leave this room. If God has been pulling on your heart today and you need to talk to somebody, we will be here. Let me close with a benediction, just a prayer out loud that you can listen to. May God bless us and keep us and cause his glorious light to shine upon us. May we never forget the cost of forgiveness. May the cross be the power of God to us, though it be foolish to the world. May Christ's death on that old rugged cross mean life and righteousness, freedom and worship to those chosen before the foundations of the world. Amen.